Church, I just want to tell you how much I appreciate the privilege of preaching to you week after week. Of course, I love hearing Clayton preach next Sunday as well and others at various times, but uh, it's a tremendous delight, and thank you for uh, listening so well and encouraging me as we work through the Gospel of Luke. I encourage you to turn there today to Luke chapter 21. If you're using one of the new Pew Bibles, this would be on page 827. It's 827. This is a lengthy passage we're reading today and studying today that we often call the Olivet Discourse, which just means that Jesus taught an extended amount of information in a place called the Mount of Olives. And we know from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 24, which is a parallel passage to this one, that there's a little bit of a gap between our first couple of verses and the, next, the rest of the passage in that Jesus said, made a comment about the temple, and then they went back to where they were sleeping on the Mount of Olives, and it was at that point that the disciples privately asked these questions about when these kinds of things were going to take place. So, this is a lengthy passage, and a difficult one at that, difficult to interpret, and uh, in some cases perhaps difficult to stomach for some people. It's a passage that you know, maybe it doesn't initially evoke great warmth and comfort to our hearts, but I think it should as we study it together. I hope you'll be able to see that with me. It is a section of this gospel that demands our attention because of what it teaches, because it's one of the final sections in this book that Jesus uh, teaches before he dies and goes to the cross. And so it deserves our careful thought, our careful attention together. So with that in mind, let's read Luke 22, verses 5 through 38. Again, it's a lengthy passage, but I'll read aloud and you please follow along. And while some were speaking of the temple, how it was adorned with noble stones and offerings, he said, as for these things that you see, the days will come when there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And they asked him, Teacher, when will these things be, and what will be the sign when these things are about to take place? And he said, See that you are not led astray, for many will come in my name, saying, I am he, and the time is at hand. Do not go after them. And when you hear of wars and tumults, do not be terrified, for these things must first take place, but the end will not be at once." Then he said to them, Nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be great earthquakes and in various places, famines and pestilences. And there will be terrors and great signs from heaven. But before all this, they will lay their hands on you and persecute you, delivering you up to the synagogues and prisons. And you will be brought before kings and governors for my name's sake. This will be your opportunity to bear witness." Settle it, therefore, in your minds not to meditate beforehand how to answer, for I will give you a mouth and wisdom which none of your adversaries will be able to withstand or contradict. You'll be delivered up even by parents and brothers and relatives and friends, and some of you they will put to death. You will be hated by all for my name's sake, but not a hair of your head will perish. By your endurance you will gain your lives." But when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then know that its desolation has come near. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains, and let those who are inside the city depart, and let, those, and let not those who are out in the country enter it, for these are days of vengeance to fulfill all that is written. Alas, for women who are pregnant, and for those who are nursing infants in those days." 
For there will be great distress upon the earth and wrath against this people. They will fall by the edge of the sword and be led captive among all nations. And Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. And there will be signs in sun and moon and stars and on the earth distress of nations in perplexity because of the roaring of the sea and the waves. People fainting with fear and with foreboding of what is coming on the world. For the powers of the heavens will be shaken, and then they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. Now when these things begin to take place, straighten up and raise your heads, because your redemption is drawing near. And he told them a parable. Look at the fig tree and all the trees. As soon as they come out in leaf, you see for yourselves and know that the summer is already near. So also when you see these things taking place... You know that the kingdom of God is near. Truly, I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all has taken place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. But watch yourselves, lest your hearts be weighed down with dissipation and drunkenness and cares of this life, and that day come upon you suddenly like a trap. For it will come upon all who dwell on the face of the whole earth. But stay awake at all times, praying that you may have strength to escape all these things that are going to take place and to stand before the Son of Man. And every day he was teaching in the temple, but at night he went out and lodged on the mount called Olivet. And early in the morning all the people came to him in the temple to hear him. So much in this passage. I'm not going to be able to answer every question you have about this passage. Even if you ask me at the door, I will not be able to answer every question you have. But I will try, uh, and I'm going to try and give as much helpful information in this sermon as I can while also showing its its tremendous relevance for our lives. If you had lived in places like West Texas, especially Northwest Texas, or kind of the panhandle of Oklahoma, Eastern Colorado, Western Kansas, in the 1930s, you would not have been faulted for thinking that you were living in the last times. What was happening in what they called the dirty 30s was there was a tremendous drought for year after year after year. And I mean, you think about uh, probably the worst section, which I'll tell you about in just a moment, happened about 1935. That was just a year before Pat Wilson was born. And so, I mean, we have members who are older than Pat was. And so we're basically talking about our parents' generation or our grandparents' generation who lived through this, depending on on our life age. But essentially, uh, you would not have been you know, faulted for thinking these have got to be the last days. These are terrible days if you were living in that part of the country and that part of history. There's an author named Timothy Egan who de- uh, describes this situation in his book called The Worst Hard Time, which I've, I've listened to as an audiobook. I have it right here if you're interested in reading it. Um, glanced through it a good bit this week, but uh, many of our, like I said, many of our parents and grandparents lived through what this book describes called the, Ameri- the Great American Dust Bowl. And so what you would have, because there had been such tremendous drought, you'd have windstorms kick up the dust from the ground and combine it all in these humongous clouds, even sometimes higher than 20,000 feet in the air. And you know that because there was a lady who was trying to fly an airplane over one of these Uh, dust clouds and had to turn back around because it was so high. She didn't think she could get over it. And so uh, one particular Sunday in April of 1935, it was Palm Sunday, people had thought 
we have got to have been through the worst of this so far. They had had dozens of these dust storms over the previous months and especially over the previous years, but I mean several per month, at least uh, one or two per month in many of these places. And finally, there was a beautiful, crystal clear, sunny Sunday morning, and people got out and went to church and aired out their sheets, which had been turned brown with all the dust that would come through all the cracks in their houses, and they thought this has got to be the end of how bad this has been. Maybe this is the, the first day of the end of these, of these storms, and instead it was the worst day of these storms that people began to call Black Sunday. And so what happened that day was just this incredibly large, incredibly dark dust storm came out. If you didn't get into your house fast enough, you would lose your child and probably never find them again. Or if you did, they would be dead. They would have suffocated in breathing, by breathing in the dust out in the fields. Uh, people could, uh, could look out along the horizon and see nothing coming at all except for Thousands of birds flying toward you and hundreds or thousands of rabbits running toward you. And they say, what in the world? And it was, they were all running from the dust storm that they could sense was coming. And people's cars just shut down because of the electricity in the air. If you touch someone else, you both flew backwards because of the amount of the electricity, the, the static electricity you guys would feel by touching each other. It was catastrophic. It was cataclysmic. All at one time on this Sunday in April of 1935. But the thing was, it was just, at the end of it, it was just another one of these days and just another one of these dust storms that came day after day, month after month, year after year in uh, the great plains of our country. Can you imagine what it would have been like to live through such a calamity? Or think about the people who experienced Hurricane Katrina in 2005, only to have another hurricane, I think it was called Rita, come through a couple of weeks later. This passage describes such a situation, a dark day where those who, who would have been living through it would have thought this has to be the end. There's no way we're going to survive this. What Jesus tells us in this chapter is that God's judgment on sin will be cataclysmic. If you're taking notes and know how to spell cataclysmic, just write very bad. God's judgment on sin will be very bad. It will be cataclysmic. So prepare now. That's what Jesus is telling his initial audience, that's what Luke was telling his initial audience, and that's what we need to continue to say today. Now, as we get into this text, you're going to notice that all of this was future at the point that Jesus said it. That's obvious. There's something like 30 future verbs in this passage. I believe that all of this was future at the point that Luke wrote it. So I believe that Luke wrote this book around the year 63 or 64, But then much of this was fulfilled in the year A.D. 70. I don't believe all of it was. uh, But much of it was fulfilled in the year A.D. 70. And I'll talk about what happened then uh, when the Romans destroyed Jerusalem. But what that means is uh, it was all future when Jesus said it. I believe it was all still future when Luke wrote it. But then much of this has been fulfilled. But even the parts that have been fulfilled, it's like there's like a shadow and maybe they saw the shadow in their day, in the, say the year 70 in, the, in, in Jerusalem, but then the, the greatest fulfillment is still yet to come. In other words, it's still future from our perspective, reading it here nearly 2,000 years after Luke wrote it. And so, uh, 
I, I want to address the questions, of course, of, of, you know, what parts of this are still future, what parts of this uh, should we expect on the last day, and things along those lines. But I do want to be clear that even though people disagree about how this passage finds its fulfillment, we as Christians can minister well to one another and engage in good, meaningful church membership together, even if we don't agree on all the details of a passage like this one. So in other words, people, Christians develop what we would call a theology of the end times. And what I'm arguing right now at this moment is that Christians should be able to disagree about that subject and still be great friends and great ministers to one another in a church context. So even if you disagree with, with me or with, um, with other Christians about this, we're talking about what we would call a third-level issue. Like, this is not, uh, not something to get into great uh, ugly debates about. We can disagree about this in godly ways and still minister together. So, there are basically three ways we could look at this passage. One is that it's all still entirely future. We could read this passage and say, all of this is still going to come down the road. The second way we could look at this is say, all of this has been fulfilled already. Like before we were alive, most of it in the year 70, if not all of it in the year 70. There are theologians who hold that perspective. I'm persuaded of the third option, which is that some of it has been fulfilled in the year AD 70 when the Romans came and destroyed Jerusalem, but that there's still a great fulfillment uh, for much of this passage ahead of us. So that's, I'm just laying all my cards on the table right now, and if I've already lost you, it's okay, I'll bring you back in in just a moment, but if that's one of your questions that you have as you hear a passage like this, I'm convinced that some of it was fulfilled, some of it has not been fulfilled, and so uh, even those who are convinced that the whole passage was fulfilled in the year AD 70 by the Romans would still see the judgment described in this passage uh, as being a foretaste of the even greater worldwide judgment that the Bible describes to come at the end of this age. So as we work through this, essentially what we're, what we're coming to in verses 5 through 9 is Jesus saying that the temple is going to be destroyed. There's just this, this kind of generic prediction that Jesus gives, and then he gives a lot more details about how that's going to happen, what it's going to look like when that happens, and how you should respond to it. And so essentially in verse 5, you have people speaking of the temple in glowing ways, like, wow, look how beautiful that building is. Kind of like the way Clayton just described that we have a beautiful city. I love Chicago. I love our skyline, our weather, every part of it. Um, I love so much about our city. And people who were living in Jerusalem loved their temple. And where Jesus was sitting on the Mount of Olives, or perhaps standing, but where he was on the Mount of Olives when he was giving this information to his disciples, uh, basically from about verse 9 down through the end of the, the, the chapter, they would have been looking back over at Jerusalem a couple of miles away and seeing the temple particularly elevated above the rest of the buildings, and it would have been like the highlight of the skyline. Perhaps the sun was setting behind it, giving it kind of a special glow while Jesus was describing that the temple is going to be destroyed. And the disciples surely were scratching their heads about this, which is why they asked questions like, when is this going to happen? How are we going to know this is going to happen? And so people were speaking of the temple, and I'll tell you, I'm going to go into some detail on these verses, but I'm not going to be able to go into this level of detail in the whole passage. So just don't get nervous if you think we're going to go into this level of detail in every verse. But they say that, that the temple was adorned with noble stones and offerings. So as we think about the history of the temple, when was it built? Or maybe they'll just ask this question. 
Who built the temple? And you want to say Solomon. And then what happened to it? It was destroyed. Who destroyed it? The Babylonians, right? And so you have entire sections of the Old Testament describing this calamity. And so then you have books like Nehemiah and Haggai and others like this that describe the rebuilding of the temple. And in Haggai, 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 however you you want to pronounce that, when people saw the temple being rebuilt, what did the older generation do when they saw it? They wept, open tears. And you can read that passage in, in um, actually in several different parts of the, of the Old Testament where it was hard to make out who the people were who were celebrating that the temple was being rebuilt and who the people were who were weeping loud tears because this temple was not as glorious as it had been when Solomon had built it. Well, then Herod came along not too long before uh, this passage we're reading and wanted to make the temple even more glorious and beautiful. And so this section here in verse 5 where it says it was adorned with noble stones. That just means beautiful, glorious, unimaginably rich-looking stones and beautiful offerings, which just means that that much of the the temple was covered in gold. There were man-size ornaments on the outside of it, just humongous golden vessels, and all this to draw attention to how beautiful it was. What an amazing accomplishment. People said it was really one of the wonders of the world when Herod finished building this. Interestingly, he finished building it about the year 63, and then it was torn down in the year 70, so it didn't last too long. It didn't have too much of a a time in the sun. But uh, what Jesus says as they're commenting, wow, look how beautiful this temple is, what Jesus says is, yes, And as for these things that you see, the days will come when there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. When we say stones, we're not talking about bricks like we have on the outside of our building. We're talking about some of these stones, uh, Jewish historians said, were the size of boxcars, okay? Like picture a semi-truck driving down the road, and that's the size of, you know, some of these stones. Humongous, made out of marble in some cases. I mean, just enormous, beautiful, and Jesus says it's all going to be destroyed. That probably didn't sit well with some of these uh, disciples. They probably would have thought, why in the world are you telling us this, and what's the point of all of this? And so they ask in verse 7, so tell us when these things will be, and how will we know that it's about to happen? What are the signs that we'll see? Well, notice Jesus' response in verse 8. He doesn't answer the question yet. He doesn't even get close to answering the question yet. What he does is he gives you a warning. You look at verse 8 and ask yourself, what is the warning that Jesus wants you to come away with before he even gets close to answering when this is going to happen? What's he tell you to do? Watch out for people who want to mislead you about these things, about future events. See to it that you are not led astray because basically, you could put it this way, there will be false teachers who come along. Was he wrong about that? Absolutely not. The rest of the New Testament tells us this happened over and over and over again. Church history tells us this continues to happen even to our day, in our day. There are people who come and say, I am the Messiah. That's what he means by I am he. The time is at hand, which means it's now time for the, for the return of Christ. We all have had this happen in our own lifetimes. Every single person who's in this room has lived in a time when there have been people who gave specific declarations of when Jesus is going to return. You can have some fun on Wikipedia or something like that this afternoon if you want to see more details about that. 
People make predictions about this all the time. And Jesus starts off, before he answers when this is going to happen, he says, just don't fall into the traps of people who want to tell you such and such and such and such are going to happen, and that's the sign that the Lord's about to return. Then he describes further these wars and fearful events and persecution that will come before this time when Jerusalem is surrounded and destroyed. So he's not even talking yet about the temple being destroyed. He's not going to go answer that question yet. First, he's going to say, before that time comes, here's what's going to happen. You're going to have crazy wars. You're going to have natural disasters. You're going to have international conflict. You're going to have physical problems that are unimaginable. Even this comment about the various places, there will be famines and pestilences. Why was there such thing as the Great American Dust Bowl? Because of incredible famines. What I'm saying is these types of famines were happening long before the one in the 1930s. They were happening in the decades around the time that Jesus was living all over the world. I mean, we read about famines in in a variety of places in the Bible. Even in the book of 2 Corinthians, one of the reasons that the churches had to kind of gather funds together was because there was a terrible famine and Christians in parts of the world needed the help of Christians in other parts of the world. There'll be terrors and great signs from heaven. But notice verse 12. Before there's these wars, before there's these natural disasters and international conflict and so forth, there'll be people who lay their hands on you, the disciples of Jesus. Those that were sitting right there when Jesus said this, and the further disciples who who came in the next generation or two and have continued to happen to this day. There will be people who lay their hands on you and persecute you. They will deliver you up to the synagogues and prisons, and you will be brought before kings and governors for my name's sake. So let me ask you this question. Is that still happening to this day? Resounding yes. That's why we have a publication called The Voice of the Martyrs. That's why we have uh, persecution updates from our missions partner, Frontline Missions. You can read these on their website. That's why we have entire organizations devoted to trying to minister to Christians in difficult places where it's illegal to be a Christian or at least very hard to be a Christian. Why we support people like this. So yes, these things are happening now. When else has this happened? All throughout church history. This is why you've perhaps heard of a guy named Justin Martyr who died in about the year 150 or so, maybe 180, right around that time. Why was he martyred? Because of his faith. And why have there been thousands upon thousands of other people who were killed for their faith because of what Jesus predicted here? Even in the earliest days after Jesus predicted this, this passage was fulfilled in part. That's what I'm arguing. There was immediate fulfillment and long-going fulfillment in, in many of these parts of this passage. What specifically do we have in mind when I say that? That even in the earliest days after Jesus said this, there was fulfillment. Who wrote the book of Luke? Luke. Who wrote the book of Acts? Luke. Put them together. We're in one of the last couple chapters of the book of Luke. If you just go into one of the first couple chapters of the book of Acts, you have people being thrown into prisons, people being delivered over before kings and governors. Where do we have this in the book of Acts? In Acts 3, and in Acts 4, and in Acts 5, and in Acts 6, and in Acts 7, and we can go on and on to Paul's defense before Festus and Paul's defense before Caesar in the latter chapters of the book. It goes on and on. And so if you go and read the book of Acts this afternoon, which would be an amazing way to steward your Sunday afternoon, and you read Acts and you're looking for these types of terms like synagogues and prisons and kings and governors and being delivered over, it's almost on every page of the book of Acts. 
Jesus' disciples didn't have to wait long to see, is it going to be easy to follow Jesus after he ascends to heaven? It was absolutely not easy. Many of these uh, specific phrases were fulfilled in part within years of Jesus giving them to his disciples. And it won't just be your worst enemies who deliver you over. He says in verse 16, you'll be delivered even by parents and brothers and relatives and friends. Why would a good, loving God allow those who are devoted to following Him endure such hatred so that you have opportunity to tell the truth to other people? That's what he says in verse 13. This will be, this delivering over to other enemies will be your opportunity to bear witness. You get to tell people the truth by suffering this kind of persecution. We here in America are really not experiencing persecution to this level. Uh, there, there are parts that make it difficult to be a Christian right now, but it is nothing like what our Christian brothers and sisters in Morocco or in Saudi Arabia or in Iraq or Afghanistan or China or North Korea or in many, many other places are having to experience all for the name of Christ. So you'll be delivered up, but notice Verse 18, not a hair of your head will perish. Well, that makes it sound like your life's going to go on and on. Well, in a sense, notice what happens in just verse 16. You're going to be delivered up by these loved ones, and some of you they will put to death. Well, that sounds like a contradiction in terms here. Like you're not going to die, or I'm sorry, you are going to die, but not a hair of your head's going to perish. Obviously, by a hair of your head, it just means, even if you don't have hair, it just means the Lord's going to take care of you to the uttermost, to the greatest extent. The Lord knows everything about you and He's going to preserve you. Well, if your loved ones are going to throw you into prison, you're going to be killed for your faith. How can we say that God has preserved you? Just remember in a previous passage in the book of Luke where Jesus said, don't fear the one who can kill your body. Fear the one, God, who kills both body and soul in hell. What Jesus is saying is, you may very well lose your life. There are Christians today experiencing this level of persecution around the world. Even if you lose your life, you will not be forsaken by God. You will be brought safely all the way home into the Lord's presence. So take great comfort, Christian. Do not give in to the fear and the foreboding that Jesus describes here. Rest in the comfort and the promise that God Himself, our Good Shepherd, will take us all the way home. By your endurance, you will gain your lives in verse 19. That sounds like the entire book of Revelation in one sentence. The the references to endurance and gaining your life and be given the crown of life throughout the book of Revelation just happen again and again. So there are these terrible wars and fearful events and persecutions. And now in verses 20 through 24, Jesus comes back to this comment about Jerusalem itself, about the the destruction of the temple and the city as a whole. So verse 20, when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, particularly Roman armies, it won't be hard to tell who the enemies are or why they're coming. Now you know the time of desolations come. There's the answer to the question, when will these things be? What will be the sign when you see the flags, the Roman flags, and you see the soldiers with their swords and their spears and their 
catapults and their flames circling around the city. That's the time to get out. <laughs> Sounds like good counsel that Jesus is giving to his disciples here. If you're in the city, get out. If you're in Judea, in the countryside that surrounds Jerusalem, flee away to the hills. If you're out in the country, don't come back to the city to think you need to get your personal belongings now. Get away as fast as you can. These are the days of vengeance to fulfill all that is written. What does Jesus mean by that? To fulfill all that is written. That they're days of vengeance. There was a passage early on in the book of Luke, in, in uh, Luke 4, where Jesus quotes Acts, I'm sorry, Isaiah chapter 61. And he says, this is the day of the, the year of jubilee, the year of celebration, the year of the Lord's favor, where you can receive the grace of the Lord. Where Jesus cut off in his quotation of Isaiah 61 was where Isaiah says, and the day of the Lord's vengeance. He cut that part off because it wasn't the day of the Lord's vengeance yet. What he's describing here is the day of the Lord's vengeance. That's why he uses that word. He's probably quoting, or at least alluding to, Isaiah 61 there. And multiple other passages throughout the prophets, particularly. Books like Isaiah and Jeremiah and Daniel and and a variety of other Old Testament passages. Wide variety. These are the days of vengeance, of God's wrath to fulfill Old Testament prophecies about his judgment on his people for their rebellion. Let's just go back to what I said at the very beginning about this passage. It's saying that God's judgment on sin will be cataclysmic. This is not arbitrary on God's part. He's doing this. He's sending this difficulty and this tribulation and this war and this destruction because of Israel's sin, specifically because of their rejection of Jesus as their Messiah. And the, the heat between Jesus and the Pharisees and the scribes and the elders, the Jewish leaders, has been raising. It's through the roof at this point. They hate Him. They are rejecting Him. And Jesus is telling them, you are going to be judged, particularly in the year AD 70, and for all those who continue to rebel against Him, on the last day. Jerusalem will be destroyed. He says in verse 23, Alas for women who are pregnant, for those who are nursing infants in those days. Josephus has some graphic, very disturbing parts about this in his writings about what happened in in 70 when Titus, the Roman general, came in and surrounded Jerusalem and burned it and tore the temple down and took all the gold they could and things like that. If you were... What's... What's the problem if you're pregnant or you're nursing? You're probably, for one, you're probably not able to run as fast, right? You feel like you're responsible for somebody else, so you can't just grab your bag and run for the hills. There's a lot of attending circumstances here that make it particularly difficult for these people. There will be people who are led captive or taken, who who fall by the edge of the sword. That means they're cut in half. That means they die because they are in Jerusalem. Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles, by people who are not Jewish. That's all that means. Until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. And I would argue we're still in that time. Part of that is referring to the mission to the Gentiles that Paul talks about in the book of Acts and in the other New Testament epistles. That's a part of what that means. This idea of the times of the Gentiles. In verses 25 through 28, this is where if there's a section that is primarily still yet to be fulfilled, I would say this is that section. And I think you know, most New Testament commentators would, would agree with that. 
that there will be signs in heaven and signs on the earth. There will be great difficulty, you know, uh, distressing things that you can see up in the sky, in other words, and distressing things happening. If you're in a boat, it's not going to be a good situation. Perhaps there's terrible earthquakes and, and your home will be destroyed. Yes, those things were t- happening, and Jesus talked about those back in verse 10 and 11. It seems that, that Jesus is describing a future day when this is particularly vexing. People will be fainting with fear and foreboding in verse 26 because of what is coming on the world. And then they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. What Jesus does there is quotes, even the part of the Son of Man is quoting Daniel chapter 7 and referring to the Lord's second return when He comes to restore all things, to judge the righteous and the wicked, the resurrection of the righteous and the, and the, and the wicked, and all that is involved in so many passages in what we call the day of the Lord, typically is referred to that in the Old Testament, or the day of Christ is typically referred to in the New Testament, all referring to this last day when Christ will return. And when these things take place, Jesus says in verse 28, straighten up and raise your heads because your deliverance, your redemption is about to happen. You're about to be delivered from this difficulty. This idea of straightening up and raising your head made me think of uh, those who were in Japanese prison camps at the end of World War II when suddenly they, they received the news that the war's over, that they're free people. And they celebrate and they party and they are exulting in this news because the day of redemption has arrived, the day of deliverance. They're no longer captives. And even the, the Japanese soldiers themselves took off running because they knew, okay, now we're the ones who are going to be you know, aimed at here. You can straighten up, you can celebrate, you can lift up your head because the day of deliverance is upon you. Verses 29 through 33 here, Jesus basically says, now let me give you a little picture. I'm just going to summarize it in a a little snippet here. Let me give you a little picture that everybody's going to be able to understand. When you see leaves on a tree, you can know that summer is almost here, right? We're not close to that here in Chicago right now, but a couple months from now, there'll be leaves on all the trees, and okay, it's a good sign that summer's about to come. Maybe there's not figs on the fig tree yet. Maybe there's not apples on the apple trees yet, but you know those things are going to come because the weather's getting warmer. Jesus is just using a simple example from nature that everyone who's sitting there going, uh-huh, we understand this, like we've seen this every year of our lives. And he's simply saying, when you see these things taking place, now you know that the end is coming, that the kingdom of God is near. And so then how should Jesus' disciples respond to this, and how should we, living nearly 2,000 years after he said this, respond to this? That's what Jesus does in verses 34 through 36. So just to summarize, what we saw is Jesus explain what's going to happen. That section there about the fig tree, he illustrates what's going to happen. And now he's going to talk about how you should respond to it or the application, your response to it. He says, watch yourselves and stay awake. That's verse 34 and verse 36. And as part of staying awake, be praying at all times. These are your responses. This is what... Peter and James and John, the other apostles who were sitting with Jesus on the Mount of Olives, hearing him say all this, that's what they should have done. Keep praying, keep watching, be vigilant, be alert, don't get overwhelmed with the cares of life, and this is what we need to do as well. And so, essentially what we've done is is walk through this, 
And then verses 37 through 38 is just kind of like a summary that leads us into our passage for, for a few weeks from now. But what I want to do now is just kind of talk through some various responses to this. And I've kind of sprinkled a few of these in along the way, but uh, a little bit more uh, clearly now. Just even from verses 34 through 36, there are so many uh, ways we can talk about this. One is to be alert spiritually, marked by prayer. Specifically, what are they to be praying about? What are we to be praying about? That you may have strength to escape all these things, and that you would have strength to stand before the Son of Man. Pray the Lord will preserve your faith to the very end. You probably know of Christians. You may have books that you've picked up from our book table that were endorsed by people who called themselves Christians and no longer do anymore. Okay, This is not something that is terribly foreign to us, right? That we hear of people who forsake their faith, forsake the faith. And so we want to say, pray that you would stand before the Son of Man, which means pray that the Lord will give you grace to preserve your faith to the very end, that He will lead you all the way home. From verse 34, this one is loaded with application for us. Watch yourselves, lest your hearts be weighed down with dissipation, which is this partying, carousing, getting carried away with craziness, drunkenness, and cares of this life. That sounds a lot like chapter 8, which we saw about a year ago, uh, the parable of the, uh, the seeds that fall in the ground. And what Jesus says is, what fell among the thorns, they are those who hear, but as they go on their way, they're choked by the cares and riches and pleasures of life. What's it look like to be, cared by the, to be choked out here? To be numbed by the cares of this world? What it looks like is to think that your job is so important that you shouldn't take the time to go to church, to engage in the habits of grace, to spend time with other Christians. Your job is the care of your life in that case. Or to think, I've got to go to the gym like three times a day. The care of your life is taking care of your body. I'm going to only eat this kind of particular food, uh, this particular kind of food, and I'm only going to drink water or you know, something with electrolytes in it. And you're super particular about all these things, so much so that you spend all your time with friends at the gym but no time with Christians who are sharpening you as iron sharpens iron. The cares of this life have deadened you to what's real, to what's important. Don't be enamored by the world's trinkets. I've got to have the coolest car or the coolest phone or the coolest setup. And what we were to say is none of that is going to matter. It's not going to matter if somebody comes and drags you off to jail because of your faith in Christ. So look at life through this perspective that you do not want to be carried away, weighed down by the cares of this life. See the destructiveness of sin. This judgment is not arbitrary. We've already mentioned that, but this is all in response to Israel's sin against the Lord. And so, Christian, evaluate your life Perform like a self-audit where you look at your heart and ask yourself, am I showing evidences of God's grace in my life, humility and holiness and love for my family and my neighbors and my coworkers and unbelievers? How am I doing in my evangelism? How am I doing taking care of other Christians, discipleship? How am I doing in the areas of prayer and Bible intake? And all of these various channels perform a self-audit to ask yourself, have I been 
numbed by the cares of this life. And then finally, take God at His word. He predicted this. As I've said over and over again, much of this was fulfilled in in the disciples' own lifetimes. But verse 33, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words, Jesus says, will not pass away. Essentially, he's alluding there to Isaiah chapter 40. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of God endures forever. So take God at his word. His word will never pass away. And then finally, let me just say, and I briefly alluded to this a moment ago, when you understand that there is such thing as an end of the world, and that there is such thing as being rightly related to God and out of right fellowship with God, that there is such thing as judgment for those who are engaged in sin, please just let me urge you to take evangelism and missions one not more seriously than you currently do right now. And for some of us, that might mean that you have a friend over, you take him out to lunch. For others, it might mean you invite somebody to church with you. For others, it might mean that you give to the cooperative program or one of our other missionaries. There are a variety of ways to respond to that, but I would just urge you to take it one notch higher because you understand in love that judgment is super serious. It is cataclysmic as this passage lays out for us. Who knows how the Lord will use our efforts just to invite a coworker or a neighbor or a loved one to come to church with us or to have lunch with us and get involved in the details of their lives and perhaps show them the, the reality of the gospel for their struggles and their sorrows. This passage describes tremendous judgment, describes in part things that have happened in the past, describes in part things that will come in the future, and the response would be, Lord, help me be prepared now. Help me not be carried away by the cares of this life. Have my heart choked out. Help me, Lord, to walk in faith and godliness while I still have the chance. Let's close in prayer. Father, may we be people of your word who read passages like this and respond in, in awe even and humility rather than in merely in sorrow, worldly sorrow about what people will lose or what difficulties people have experienced for you. May we be people of your word, people of holiness, people who are walking the Christian life one with another in light of the impending judgment for sin. In Christ's name, amen.